Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. My guests today for the 27th episode of the Hale Report are Michael Green and Eleanor Shiori Hughes. Eleanor is an EconView contributor and a graduate student at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service with a particular interest in Asian affairs. She has studied with Professor Green at Georgetown. Michael J. Green is the Senior Vice President for Asia, Japan, and the Henry Kissinger Chair at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., He is also the director of the Asian Studies Program at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. From 2001 to 2005, Dr. Green served as the National Security Council, first as director for Asian Affairs and then a special assistant to the president for National Security Affairs and senior director for Asia. He has a new book coming out, The Line of Advantage, published by Columbia University Press. And recently, Dr. Green was a member of an official U.S. delegation to Taiwan. We will be talking to him about all of this and more. Welcome, Mike. I see the cherry trees are blooming in Washington, but not yet here in Chicago. It's pretty nice here. I imagine it's pretty windy where you are still. Kind of cold, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) We're at 70 today, but no cherry blossoms. Ah. So it won't last. That's Chicago, as you know. Yeah. So I don't know if Eleanor warned you, but I always ask my podcast um, guests first how they became um, interested in the field that became their life's work. Uh, You know, for example, I was an exchange student to Sendai, which is why I became interested in Japan. What was your pathway to the study of Asia? Well, I wasn't supposed to go to Asia at all. Um, I thought I was going to Europe. And uh, my mother had been a diplomat in Rome before I was born. And so I studied French and Latin and, and, um, passed the foreign service exam and thought I was going to be a diplomat in, in Europe. Um, and, uh, knew that it would take me, you know, a year or so to get through all the clearances and finish the process for the foreign service. So I spent that gap year. I thought I was going to spend it in Scotland playing bagpipes (laughs) because my, other or golfing well but i i actually am terrible at golf but i'm actually a prize-winning bagpiper and and i've played uh since i was 12 so i thought i'd go to scotland play bagpipes and i had applied for a special fellowship called the watson fellowship to go to uh, scotland and then just in case i applied to go to japan to teach english as a backup and um at the last final interview to go to scotland the head of the fellowship when i walked in the door in my kilt said I hate the bagpipes. And so <laughs> I had to go to plan B. So I went to Japan on what's now called the jet program. Thought I'd do it for a year or two and go into the foreign service, but I, I was hooked. So I, I did a PhD instead and, and did this policy scholarly thing. Still play bagpipes. So, so the answer is I became a Japan expert because of, um, cause some guy didn't like the bagpipes. I love that story. That is fantastic. That is wonderful. You know, you've also become a very prolific writer, and I really love the beginning of your foreign affairs article uh, with Evan Medeiros. And you open with Lee Kuan Yew's comment that over the past 70 years, the U.S. has had a stop-and-go policy, basic, basically in Asia. What, in your view, could change that and add some more stability to the relationship the United States has with Asia? 
Well, it is true. We mm-hmm. Evan Medeiros, who teaches at Georgetown with me and was Professor, excuse me, President Obama's um, senior Asia uh, uh, advisor on the NSC. Um, we we started our our piece um, quoting Lee Kuan Yew, who said Americans think that Asia policy is like a video where you can just hit pause and go work on Europe or the Middle East and come back and resume the movie. And of course, Asia moves on without you. And that's much more consequential now than it was 30 years ago um, because of China's um, growth. But, you know, in my view, I think a lot of people would agree aspirations for regional hegemony because of the North Korean threat. Um, Russia is still a player. It's a much more consequential region. And uh, we can't afford to hit pause and think we can just go back after dealing with uh, other parts of the world. So what might change it? Well, I mean, it has been changing. I mean, this administration, um, like uh, the Trump administration, um, had an Asia first policy. They And Obama announced the pivot to Asia, but it wasn't really real until fairly recently. And there is pretty bipartisan consensus about that. Um, and we were moving in that direction. And then the Ukraine invasion happened. Yeah, so, a topic, sadly, we cannot avoid. <laughs> and, and so some Asia experts, former ambassadors and so forth, have said, um, we just can't get into Ukraine. It's Asia is more important. But I actually wrote a piece um, in foreign policy strongly disagreeing with that. In my view, the future of Asia is being written in Ukraine right now. If, if, um, if, if the Russians succeed, that example of coercion against a democratic state is very bad in Asia. Uh, undermines American credibility, uh, empowers aggression, uh, incentivizes aggression. Um, but but also, if if Putin succeeds, we will not be able to pivot to Asia because we'll have to, understandably, deploy significantly more forces and resources to Europe to deal with a an emboldened Russia that's um, on a much longer front with NATO. You know, all the way from the Baltic down to the Black Sea. So. We're going to have to focus on Ukraine now. We have to. And the key is, can we keep um, one hand on Asia at the same time? And the administration's decision to send a delegation that I was on to Taiwan was one part of that to show we can do both at the same time. But it's going to be challenging. We're going to have to increase the defense budget. We're going to have to strengthen alliances. This is not for amateurs. Right. Exactly. Um, You know, you also mentioned that... um, and I can't imagine we can have a full pivot to Asia without a China strategy that the Biden administration has not yet articulated this strategy. What, if you could articulate it, if you could direct it, what would it be? What would it look like? What would be the grand strategy over the coming decades? So it's interesting you, you asked it that way, because for most of my uh, professional career, I have advocated what might be called an allies first strategy with China, or some people would call it an outside in strategy. To get China right, we have got to get Japan, Australia, Korea, um, India, Europe, Southeast Asia. We have to get Asia right. We have to set the stage. Um, and, you know, I began arguing this in the mid 90s when I finished my PhD and went to work in the Pentagon for uh, Kurt Campbell, who's now the senior Asia official, Indo Pacific official in the White House. The other view was that to get China right, we have to get China right. That it's all about negotiating a, you know, some people would say a G2, some people would say a bipolar condominium, a grand bargain. You know, Xi Jinping in the Obama years offered what he called a new model of great power relations. So get things right with China and everything else will fall in place. And um, I, and Kurt Campbell, who's now in the government and others, Rich Armitage, who argued for the allies first, get Asia right first policy, 
um, didn't win all those debates, frankly. But now, um, I'd say 80, 90 percent of Congress, the administration think tanks in, in, in the United States, uh, and we've surveyed this at CSIS, agree to get China right, we've got to focus on allies. So this is the cornerstone of Biden's Asia policy and foreign policy is allies. And so in a way, that debate is won. But, but that still leaves the question, okay, we're going to work with allies to deal with China. What exactly then is your relationship with China? That part is still debated. You know, are we containing, decoupling, getting leverage for a better relationship? That is an issue that this administration has almost entirely avoided, actually. They're, they're focusing on the part which I always thought was necessary, but not sufficient. And that's the allies. You know, in terms of allies, I think you did not mention Australia, but one, we have a lot of listeners in Australia. How do you see Canberra's outsized role? It seems that Australia has more and more of a role and we're uh, actually dispatching uh, troops to Northern Australia. Um, How do you see that relationship? You described it exactly right, outsized. I mean, Australia's influence and importance to the U.S. is... um, you know, the the Australian military is smaller than the U.S. Marine Corps, but they are now uh, one of the most important, certainly the top two or three militaries we have to work with um, on the questions of um, the future of Asian order, you know, what we now call a free and open Indo-Pacific. The two most important countries by far are Australia and Japan. Uh, Japan has, has still the third largest economy um, with significant military and technology resources. Japan has a very large um, role to play. It's indispensable. But Australia is more agile. And because mm-hmm. of five eyes and because we have a, a history of operating together since the Battle of Hamel in the First World War and intelligence sharing that's unprecedented, Australia is agile and they are in our decision-making loop. When you go to the Pentagon, when you go to US, the U.S. command in Korea, in Hawaii, at Nunupaycom, and you go in and you get briefed uh, by two star generals and admirals, you'll have five, six people on the table and with stars, and there will be one or two who are Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in NATO, it, it, it's often uh, British. Um, so they are in our commanding structure. They are in our intelligence system. And so Japan is indispensable and interesting now, interesting and proactive. But Australia has the, and the Japanese know this and appreciate it, the privileged position as one of the five eyes. The others are Britain, Canada, and New Zealand, but none of them right. are as sharp and focused on the competition in the Indo-Pacific as Australia is. So right. outsized is the way to put it. And by the way, significantly increasing their military spending, their um, their spending on um, and diplomacy and engagement. I mean, they're really putting in resources and taking risk, frankly, taking on the wrath of China. Not not in a gratuitous way, but to but to maintain the the the, the interests and values we share. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's that's how I see it. I'm a member of the Australian uh, American Leadership Dialogue. Yeah. And when you see how that grows over time, it's just been amazing. Now, your book um, is about Japan and uh, really about Prime Minister Abe. And from that point of view, it's called Line of Advantage. And it, it's uh, an insider view of Japan's strategic thinking. Um, Eleanor, you also recently um, interviewed Prime Minister Abe, so we'll love to hear about that as well. One of my guests recently was Elizabeth Economy, and her book is How China Sees the World. And your book, to me, is How Japan Sees the World. 
And with this very, through the eyes of this very pivotal leader who is no longer in power, but does seem to have a role still to play in, in Japanese politics. Um, you mentioned also um, how this evolved based on Japanese history. Could you talk about those historical precedents and how we've ended up here today, how Japan and how uh, Abe led Japan to where, where we are today? So for m- most of Japan's post-war history, um, the trajectory for a Japan that was defeated in the war, that um, was encumbered with um, you know, war guilt and, and, and destroyed by the war, um, the, the basic framework was established by uh, Prime Minister Yoshida. Um, you know, in Japan, they say family name first, so Yoshida Shigeru, who um, determined that to recover and restore its reputation, Japan would, would align with the U.S., but play a very mi- minimal role in military and security affairs and sort of keep its head down and focus on economic recovery. And it was a great deal for everyone. Uh, Japan's economic recovery, frankly, helped us stop communism after the Vietnam War. Um, you know, sh- it shored up the free world in Asia. Um, the Japanese had access to the American market. Um, Japan didn't have to do risky things in the world, stayed clear of the Gulf War and other, the Vietnam War and every major conflict. And it was a great deal. And also for the Japanese after the 1970s and 1972 on, they had a great relationship with China. Great relationship with China, great relationship with the US. This Yoshida doctrine, this framework was a a great deal and very comfortable. But with with the end of the Cold War and then the slowdown of Japan's economy, and then the increasing assertiveness of China, which surpassed Japan in 2010 to be the second largest economy, that deal wasn't working anymore. So what Abe basically did was the debate started in the 90s. It intensified. A consensus really is 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 there in Japan around the strategy that Abe consolidated when he was in power. And the, my book tells the the inside story, really, in English, the only one, version of how he did it. Um, and the historical roots, by the way, going way back to the Meiji period and even earlier for the thinking. But what Abe did mm-hmm. was um, he decided and convinced the Japanese diet and people that that this alibi strategy was no longer viable. And um, you see the Germans with Ukraine suddenly changing their Exactly strategy, what I was thinking. Suddenly mm-hmm. changing their strategic culture in like 48 hours. In Japan, <laughs> it took 10, 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, but Abe led it, really led it intellectually and politically. And in many ways, the most significant and emblematic uh, piece of it was when he changed the interpretation of Japan's constitution, Article Nine, renounces war, and mm-hmm. and and that was interpreted for decades and decades as meaning Japan would not play a role in military uh, affairs beyond the Japanese archipelago, you know, peacekeeping, but not help the U.S. if Taiwan or Korea or South China Sea uh, have conflict. Well, he changed it. He said from now on, Japan can. And, and in the Western Pacific probably will be there with the U.S. and Australia and other democracies front in the front, uh, helping out. Um, huge risk. Um, they've decided in Japan and, 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 the, and the, every government is going to support this going forward. This is a new strategy. They have to be in. They have to take risk. They have to shape the environment. Um, yeah. and, uh, and no more alibis. Um, so that is a, a sea change that it, it is interesting because the Germans did it 
in 48 hours, it, it seems, we'll see. In Japan, you know, things move a little slower, but it, it took about 15, 20 years to consolidate this consensus, but it is there. Yeah. Japan used to be a rule follower and now it's becoming a rule maker. Exactly. Is how I would look at it. I mean, it. it's true. Mm-hmm. And it coincides with um, the American retreat from some of the most important things we have done to maintain order and economic progress. And most notably, under the Trump administration, but also the Biden administration, our retreat from um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what's now the CPTPP, or really any economic rulemaking in Asia. As we've retreated, Japan has stepped in big time. When Abe came to power, when we were, um, the U.S. um, was leading on TPP in 2012, about 17% of Japan's trade was covered by economic agreements like TPP or, 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 or those kinds of things, about 17%. Today, today it's about 85%. Uh, Abe, wow. Abe has turned Japan into a trade policy thought leader. And just at the time when the U.S. was retreating, lucky for us, frankly. Exactly. Lucky for they us. filled the vacuum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese view of the world is uh, it's ugly if the U.S. isn't there. So they're holding the place for us. They're holding the line. Um, hoping we will get our act together, we can talk about it. I think we might. I think we. I don't think the trade policies in the U.S. are settled at all, um, and Japan's counting on that. And you know, the Lowy Institute in Australia, a very um, uh, influential think tank, did a report in 2019. Said Japan is now the leader of the free world in Asia, which is a little harsh wow. for us, but there's something to it. <laughs> right. And how do you see? Um, Prime Minister Kishida, now that he is in power, is he a departure from what Abe's policies are? Is he continuing everything? Is there any difference between the two prime ministers? The trajectory is largely the same. He was Abe's foreign minister. Um, All the candidates who ran to replace Abe last year in the ruling Liberal Democratic Party presidential election, all of them basically endorsed Abe's strategy. And none of the opposition parties except the communist, small communist party, said they would have a different strategy. I mean, there's a lot of countries are polarized. Japan's not very polarized, especially Mm -hmm. on these kinds of issues. So Kishida's following that line. But the tone is different. I mean, Abe had an urgency to his Mm -hmm. formation of a grand strategy, establishment of a national security council, and and, and really Japan's first post-war national security establishment, um, to counterbalancing China, Um, there's less urgency now. Uh, So so Abe is out there again in the press, nudging and pushing Kishida to do more and do faster, Uh, even saying we should think about, you know, U.S. nuclear weapons in Japan and things that are pretty, pretty spicy. Um, Because he, you can tell he's impatient that Kishida should be trying harder and moving faster. Um, uh, But the trajectory is the same. And in some areas, Kishida is probably more aligned with with, uh, Biden than Abe would have been. For example, uh, Kishida is much tougher on Russia than Abe was and is in his front and center in the Ukraine sanctions. Um, Kishida is much more interested in, in democracy, which is a signature issue for, for Biden. So in some ways, Kishida is a little more aligned with Joe Biden and who seems to like him. Um, but for the national security hawks in Japan, he's not moving fast enough. But the trajectory is the same. It's all about whether you're going 60 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. It's an, it's an interesting backbench kind of relationship, isn't it? And uh, and it's consensus-driven versus Kevin Rudd and yeah. his <laughs> and his comments about the current well, not just um, not government, just, not just Kevin Rudd, but um, you know Paul Keating, 
Um, oh yeah, uh, Turnbull. I mean, it seems to be a thing in Australia that former foreign ministers come out and just troll their successors. Um, and <laughs> I, it, it, it's a part of Australian politics we don't really have. I mean, when I was in the White House, Jimmy Carter used to criticize Bush, but you know, Jimmy Carter criticized everyone, so it was okay. <laughs> the Japanese former prime ministers rarely do it. Abe is doing it a bit, but Australia, man, that's a it's sport. Boy, former prime ministers. It's, it's a. I have always thought that politics in Australia is a blood sport. Definitely. I, yeah. I joke with Australia friends. I, I worked a lot on Australia in the White House and um, a frequent uh, frequent visitor. I joked with one friend. I said, Australian politics is like the SAS. You know, it's personal. It's up close. It's a dagger in the dark. And American politics is like the 8th Air Force. It's big, expensive, impersonal air, <laughs> air, air warfare, just heavy bombing on, you know, with billions of dollars in TV airtime. That's a glorious description. <laughs> Very accurate. That's terrific. Thank you. You've written that as soon as Russian forces, going back to a, a sadder topic, um, as soon as Russian forces marched into Ukraine, you said all eyes turned to Taiwan. And yep. I think that's exactly right. And you yourself were part of a, a U.S. government mission fairly soon after that. Um, I don't know if that was a consequence of what was going on in Ukraine, but can you talk about your trip and what the purpose was, what you found out, and what you think the level of our commitment is to Taiwan. It appears to me from the outside to be strengthening over time. And I have a daughter in Taiwan, so I have oh. a vested interest <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in my question well, as a journalist there. <laughs> I mean, on that last point, all the polls show much more robust uh, American, and not just American, Japanese and Australian and European support for Taiwan it's because of what the world, the free world has seen happen in Hong Kong, Hong Kong. and now Russia. Mm -hmm. And um, we can sympathize with a small, you know, can't say country, but a small uh, polity that that is lives in freedom and is menaced by an enormous authoritarian neighbor. I mean, support right. is strong. In our surveys at CSIS, um, particularly among elites, very strong support for defending Taiwan. The I, I think it's Pew polls. Um, over the years have never topped 50% of, of Americans who thought we should defend Taiwan. It's now over 50%. In Japan, 64%, excuse me, 74%. It's huge. In Japan, I was so surprised good. to read that. And Australia's mm -hmm. discourse has really changed. I talked to a senior Australian diplomat recently who said the number one question they tend to get in, in, in DFAT, in the foreign office these days, is about Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. So our trip was technically a no-del, a non-official delegation. But we were sent by the by the administration, by the White House. And the main purpose, and it was decided after the Ukraine invasion, and the main purpose was to send a message of reinsurance. So we had a we had a personal message from President Biden for President Tsai Ing-wen in Taipei. Um, Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, led the delegation. And with Taiwan, because we don't have official relations, you can have a significant quiet dialogue if you send um uh, an official at a certain level, but no one knows. So they, the administration, I think, wanted to publicly signal support. So that was the main point, I, uh, I believe, of this mission. And they told us it's a mission of reassurance and Tsai Ing-wen used it to play up support because there were people in Taiwan were scared by what they were seeing in Ukraine. They thought war was unthinkable in the Strait. Most Taiwanese don't think there's going to be a war in the Taiwan Strait. Exactly. And, but, but that's what most Europeans thought about Ukraine. So, um, right. so it was a shock. And I think the mission succeeded, uh, thanks to President Tsai. Um, uh, the other thing we did was listen to her and her um, cabinet, but also Eric Chu, the head of the opposition KMT, um, in terms of what the U.S. can do to help and support and reassure. Um, we have constraints. We have, you know, um, 
the Taiwan Relations Act, which is a robust bipartisan law that we will help Taiwan with the articles it needs to defend itself, and that any attack on Taiwan would be viewed as a grave threat to our interests. That's not an Article 5 defense commitment like we have with Japan or Korea or NATO or Australia, but it's it's pretty robust. Um, but we also have a one-China policy. Um, and so there's some limits to what the U.S. can publicly uh, or officially do, but we wanted to hear out what 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 would reassure and help them and help to... Um, ensure that Beijing never thinks it can do what Russia is doing right now. And, you know, there are two kind of two main categories. One was what you might call asymmetrical capabilities. That, that's what they call it in, the, in Taiwan and in the Pentagon. Asymmetrical means don't try to go toe to toe with the PLA with fighters and, and frigates. Make sure that you can do what the Ukrainians are doing. Mm-hmm. Make it become a porcupine. Make it too painful for them to contemplate swallowing you. And so we had robust discussions about that. Um, that's a tough one, you know, if, for Taiwan, you know, if it you're is. talking yep. about asymmetrical capabilities, you're talking about uh, a scenario where Chinese troops are in Taipei or, or out trying to land on the beaches. Interestingly, the polls show that I think over 60% of the Taiwanese public say they'd fight. And when we were there, Taiwanese friends were, were like, you know, Googling each other, how to build a Molotov cocktail. So for a really peace loving, decent, good people, they're thinking very difficult things. So um, so that was one topic. Another topic was how Taiwan can can um, benefit from this um, remarkable demonstration of solidarity uh, among democratic states um, and the imposition of economic sanctions on Putin that I don't think he ever thought would happen. Um, right. And so, it, you know, the Taiwan uh, leadership fully understands that China's different, it's bigger, economically more intertwined, more difficult. but. Um, but the fact that Japan, Australia, Singapore, Korea finally <laughs> stood up with NATO um, uh, suggests that if China uses force against Taiwan or Japan, European countries, Canada and others are going to, they may not send troops, but th- there are things they can do. We're, sh- we're seeing that to really impose costs. So that was a very robust topic of conversation. I find it very healthy, too, because... Um, the the message from Zelensky in Ukraine is don't be the one who provokes, but then be righteous and 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 resolute in your own defense. And as you know, lyric, sometimes in the history between Washington and Taipei, we get leaders in Taipei who are a little too provocative and make Washington exactly make Washington what I was going to ask you about next election. What could happen? Yeah, so right. Tsai Tsai Ing-wen fully understands that she is reliable, predictable, no surprises. And that is, this Ukraine invasion, I think, has made it um, clearer to the political leaders in Taiwan that you need to be trusted and you need trustworthy partners and trusted dialogues. And that means you need to be not causing, not the one causing the problem. It's no longer um, uh, unimaginable. And therefore, maybe the advantage that um, the situation in Ukraine has for Taiwan is to give everybody time to think through the options and to prepare. I, I think uh, that the, that um, honestly, people are saying, you know, you you see this a lot that because of the Ukraine invasion, Taiwan's next, and and I think right. it's the opposite. I think that the resilience of the Ukrainians will cause some pause in Beijing, and that that lesson, and not just the asymmetrical war fighting lesson, but the but the appeal to the world lesson, um, uh, is one that um, uh, that uh, that Taipei's gonna gonna start to 
to operationalize and think through. So they may end up being safer after this in, in an odd way. Sometimes when you see the the neighbor's house burning, you start thinking seriously about your your fire alarms and your, you know, your own safety. And, you know, some of this is leadership driven, as your book is about and talking up about President Tsai, but also um, what could happen to Taiwan could depend on Xi Jinping. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about the recent news, the recent announcement that uh, Liu He made um, saying, basically saying, we're going to back up the markets, you know, we're, uh, we're going to adhere to economic principles, we're going to support stability. It seemed to me that it was a kind of admonition against some of the policies of Xi Jinping, which aren't really, are based more in politics than economics. There is a very interesting debate in, in China right now. And we can see parts of it because you have prominent scholars and even people at government think tanks uh, uh, publishing pieces um, uh, criticizing China's current path. Um, the yeah. expansion of the state sector in the economy, which is, which is just crushing innovation and private enterprise, and the authoritarian turn and, um, and close alignment with Russia. And both of those, all of those look pretty bad right now. The economy is slowing down. Some economists, as you know, uh, think China could have zero growth this year. That's exactly that, that, JP Morgan. I think yeah. that's their that's their um, forecast. Uh, the most optimistic economists in China I know are saying two percent. Right. So um, and COVID, and then you have COVID, like, and the shutdowns right, are everywhere. And, yeah, and then you have the sanctions and the economic um, hit from Ukraine for the whole world. Um, and then on the security side. Um, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, was in Rome meeting with Yang Jiechi, the State Counselor for Foreign Affairs from China. And you have um, the National Security Advisor warning the Chinese not to back up Russia. Um, right. The Chinese are not doing it on, you know, major Chinese banks don't want to get caught with swift sanctions, and so they're being careful. But but there's a lot of evidence that smaller banks are helping the Russians. And um, I don't know the ground truth, but there are a lot of reports that Russia is asking for and China is considering replacing munitions, providing right. technology. Um, so, yeah, there's a fascinating debate in China. But but the fact that internationalists, private business leaders, scholars are calling for a different course, that Liu He said that, to mm -hmm. me, that's that's not evidence that there will be a different course. In fact, I would I would bet there isn't a change in course. There's some moderation or modification but that mm -hmm. Xi Jinping has set his course. And you talked about leadership. I mean, one of the things China scholars are starting to question is Russia scholars who said Putin is, is a risk taker and a gambler, but he always pulls back. Well, they were wrong. And now China scholars are asking, maybe we're wrong about Xi Jinping when we say the same thing. Exactly. Um, so We it, have to be humble, don't yeah, we? <laughs> we have to be humble. Um, the administration is playing this well. They're pushing hard. Um, the, the way they leak the intelligence reported the intelligence on Ukraine's buildup suggests to China that they will report intelligence on China's mm -hmm. backfilling and support for Russia if it happens. It is happening, but if it happens on a larger scale. The administration is playing it well, a real contrast to Afghanistan, which was pretty bad. Um, but in the end, my own view is the Russia-China alignment does not change that much. And Putin has decided, I think, we're all guessing, but I think Putin has decided a world without Putin is not safe for China. He needs that counterbalance. And he will, right. I think he will do what he has to to keep Putin from losing power. Yeah, I don't think there's been any diminution in terms of economic support right. for right. Russia on the part of China. 
the real question is with, will there be military support or will they be able to slow walk this until an agreement is reached so they don't have to make those decisions? That's why the Ukraine thing is so consequential for Asia, if that's what you care about most, right. because this could mm -hmm. end with Putin out of power and, mm -hmm. and, and an ill-advised invasion of Ukraine of a democracy resulting in regime change in Moscow. And it could even result in significant changes in Beijing. And you know the, the, the scary example of Gorbachev to Chinese leaders. Exactly. But it could also go mm -hmm. the other way. It could end up with an ironclad alliance between Moscow and Beijing that is disastrous for the Chinese economy, not to mention U.S.-China relations, but that she finds he has boxed himself into. A really consequential right. couple of months coming up. Exactly. And I wonder how you see Japan dealing with this. As, as I understand it, China doesn't really have a lot of great international banking relationships in spite of the huge size of their banks, and they rely on Japan to process most of their international payments. Do you see, is, is the relationship between China and Japan, the world's second and third largest economies, respectively, is it, is it too big to fail or to... To unravel. I, I think that Kedanren, the Japanese Business Federation, mm -hmm. would say too big to fail. And, yeah. and um, so in my book, I argued uh, and I think demonstrated that um, Japan has, particularly under Abe, um, defined what strategic competition with China looks like. You know, free and open Indo-Pacific, investing in the resilience of the rest of Asia with infrastructure financing, capacity building. That's a Japanese strategy. The Quad, you know, the Abe pushed that. Um, uh, and Abe quietly pushed the U.S. to um, engage in more technology decoupling and protect semiconductor fabrication, AI. So Japan, before Australia, before Trump, um, uh, was pushing the strategic, the strategy of competition that the, the Biden administration has now embraced, and Australia, and increasingly Europe and Canada and others. So just as Japan led in... Um, quietly, because most people don't appreciate this, quietly led in defining how we compete with China. I think Japan's now going to quietly define how we live with China um, and how we compete without, as Jake Sullivan and Kurt put it in an article, compete without catastrophe. Um, because the sweet spot for Japan is not complete decoupling. It's careful decoupling. And it's not um, retreating from a relationship with China. The administration's Indo-Pacific strategy that the White House put out was very good. But they had zero vision for what life with China is like. It was all how we compete, decouple, defend. And in fact, they said, we're not trying to shape China. We're trying to shape the environment around China. Well, the Japanese are three steps ahead. Their view is, no, we need to shape China. We need to think about what trade and investment looks like with China. We need to think about what academic exchange looks like with China, how we avoid conflict. We need to compete and set the stage for what will be a contentious but you know, enduring relationship with China that maybe bends history back towards a, a more cooperative relationship after Xi. And the, the Japanese and the Australians are two most important partners in Asia. That's the biggest difference right now between their approach and our approach. They want to compete fiercely because they see the Chinese coercing and pushing and trying to dominate. Um, but, but they want to win that competition by shaping Chinese choices and getting to a place where, where we can... Um, we can actually invest in China, trade with China, have students come from China. That is not where the Trump or Biden administrations are. Um, and and I, I, I think since we can't do it without Japan, Australia, and Europe is in a similar mode, I think eventually that's where we end up, eventually. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, Japan, Japan's view is China is too big to fail. Right. And, you know, there is a tension in, between the government and business in Japan, just like there is mm-hmm. in, in every other country. I thought it was interesting a little while back that uh, the Japanese government offered incentives to Japanese companies to reshore. Yeah. And I think not a single company took them up. No, that's on that actually, offer. That's, or is that that's true? actually not that's so or how two, many took them up? <laughs> so there were two stories that came out about that. One was a Wall Street Journal story, which sort of said, ha ha, no one took them up on it. But if the, if the Japanese press reported that um, um, applications for that funding were 20 times the available funds. So really, uh, so, that's a real disconnect. Yeah. There. So the reality is mixed. The Japan China relationship is sweet and sour. It's mixed. The, the best characterization I heard was from the CEO of a very prominent Japanese technology company who said, we are going to taper our investments mm-hmm. in China. We're not going to, the good stuff, the family jewels, is not going to China. But the market is so huge, we have to be there for growth, for our bottom line, uh, even to some extent for innovation. But semiconductor fabrication, um, high-end materials, AI, the, the Japanese companies are generally uh, on board with um tapering is what they're calling it. But 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 partially decoupling. We did a survey at CSIS. It's on our website, uh, CSISChinasurvey.org. Uh, and we asked business leaders around the world about decoupling. And the consensus actually was partial decoupling around technology, but not complete decoupling. Soro sorini. Yes. And step by step and carefully and coordinated with the US mm-hmm. and Europe. That's the hard part. Japan's trying to get the US and Europe on the same page on this, which is which is tricky. But you know, you know Japanese companies well. They're, I mean, Japanese companies have a CEO, and then usually the CEO moves on to be the chairman. Very right. rare, almost never chairwoman, but chairman. The chairman's role is to to engage with the government and and um, government and, affairs. And yeah. yeah, the government affairs in Japanese companies is done by the chairman. And mm-hmm. so companies, you know, there's a gap between government and private sector in Japan, but it's it's a couple yards. It's not like the U.S. where it's like a football field size gap. Um, uh, and so the, and the Jap, it's interesting when you talk to Japanese CEOs and chair chairman, they are patriots. They talk about the national interest, um, it, with American companies to be really honest, it's a mixed picture. Some are, but some aren't thinking about the U S national interest. They're thinking about the bottom line and their fiduciary responsibilities and their responsibilities to stakeholders. Well, um, when I talk to American companies, they feel that about the government, that the government is not helping them or assisting them or supporting well, it's them. Not so helping it's kind them, of interesting. It's not helping them to make money. And the companies are not mm-hmm. always helping the government to protect security and technology. And right. bridging that gap is really important because we benefit from an independent private sector and free market. But we're in a world where hard decisions about technology decoupling have got to be based on some kind of dialogue and consensus between, you know, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Washington. And the Japanese do that much, most countries do that much better than we do. Um, the good news for us is that because our companies are so independent, they make a lot of money and they really innovate. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, elephant in the room, we haven't talked about upcoming this spring are the quad meetings, I believe in Japan. And yep. India is part of that. But India has been neutral in terms of Russia because their own self-interest is in order to protect themselves against China, they you they utilize munitions and and equipment from Russia. Right. So it's a complicated thing for them. Is that well understood? Are they thought to be, 
you know, errant members of the quad or, or do people understand the, the reality that they face? When I was in the White House, um, we had a strategic dialogue with a very senior Chinese official that we used to do that, by the way, we don't do it anymore, but have actual serious dialogues about world affairs. And when we got to the India question, the, our Chinese interlocutor said, um, our view in Beijing, this is 2005, our view in Beijing is that the United States and India will continue to move closer and closer together. And there's nothing China can really do to stop that alignment. It's a, it's a, it's a force of world history. However, it's India. So you will be very frustrated. <laughs> and, and, and the Americans all kind of looked at each other. And India is burdened by, you know, the non-aligned movement mentality, uh, uh, now called strategic autonomy, is still pervasive. The um, it's a it's it's a developing country. It can't afford high risk international ventures, uh, except in its own narrow defense. Um, heavily dependent on Russia for military equipment. So um, uh, my sense is that the Biden administration and many in Congress understand this, mm -hmm. and um, and and uh, th that India is going to take a different view. They understand. I think that the Ukraine invasion will badly damage India's relationship with Russia, and they will diversify their supplies. But they they may not go to Boeing or Lockheed. They may go to France. <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or Instead, well, yeah, to they, make up for those submarines. Yeah, they, they, uh. yeah, exactly. The French may get a <laughs> consolation prize. But but the way Americans tend to think about, you know, the American foreign policy is, is designed to make the whole world like us, although often that doesn't work. You know, that's how mm -hmm. people in State Department tend to think. It's like, we right. want them to like us. Uh, Indians like us. There's no doubt about that. But strategic alignment with India, uh, India being part of an alliance, that's a long-term project. And my view has been, we need India to have capacity. This is about balance of power. We need India to have the capacity to sanitize, secure the Indian Ocean, to stand up to China in, in, in places like Myanmar and Bangladesh. To, we need India to be a pillar of stability and and favorable balance of power for us. And to me, India having that capacity is more important than how many times we have meetings where there are Indian American flags on the table and we're shaking hands and signing agreements. We, If we just define our India strategy in terms of agreements and alignment, it will, we'll be frustrated. But if we think about it in terms of Indian capacity, when American relative power is shrinking, that's the right way to think about it. We want India, okay. India doing well is good for us. And we should be supporting India in that context, not just thinking about, you know, how many agreements and exercises we have, which are important, but not the most important thing. Not the most important. So what, what could um, come out of all of this to kind of smack us in the head? What are the unintended consequences? And I know Eleanor is going to ask you about South Korea, but what about North Korea? North Korea seems to be more bellicose. They're launching missiles. I think one failed, however, yesterday. Yep. While everybody is just focused on China and Russia and yeah. Ukraine, uh, could North Korea take advantage of this situation? Not could, but will. They are. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, you know, it, I think that, I think in China, this debate is going on. Um, and I expect, as I said, that in the end, uh, uh, she will support Putin, make sure he doesn't fail, but avoid an outright um, confrontation with the West you know, with, with, with sanctions and banking sanctions and defying, you know, openly defying sanctions. He'll, he'll surreptitiously in different ways support Putin because. I agree with that. China, China yeah. can't afford to alienate the West uh, completely. 
and the economic interdependence is too complex. North Korea, though, this is perfect for them. They don't care about economic interdependence. Um, their big fear is if they do a, another nuclear test or missile test, that the UN Security Council will come together and impose even more crippling sanctions, and that China uh, will cut off food and fuel. Uh, China is responsible for 90% of North Korea's trade and, and energy. And so their big fear is that the international, the big powers come together and punish them. Well, that's not happening anytime soon because of Ukraine. So this is the opening North Korea has been waiting for. And I think they will advance their weapons to the next stage, which is a ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile with independent, perhaps re-entry vehicles capable of hitting US cities, uh, mm -hmm. Chicago, Washington, not super high tech, but high tech enough. Maybe a nuclear test to demonstrate they have um, uh, a uranium-based bomb with a yield that would be, you know, several times, even many times Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That I think there's a better than fifty-fifty chance they roll that out in the midst of this crisis to get leverage over us, over the new South Korean government, um, over China, and um, mm -hmm. demand to be paid off. You know, they know we can't deal with them right now. They will demand to get paid off. And then they'll freeze what they're doing for a while until they're ready for the next provocation. That's, I fear that's what we're heading for. So right. that's the next shock. And then the other big shock coming up will be our midterm elections, mm -hmm. uh, which will be a shock for the administration. Maybe not a shock. <laughs> they know what's coming. Um, every time the Republicans take the House, the defense budget goes up. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe Biden's the first Democratic president to run for president since, um, since LBJ, who did not promise to cut the defense budget. <laughs> Yeah, who promised to, he said, maybe- Not he, in this environment. He said, maybe increase it. So I think, um, I think realism is going to smack us in the face. And I think we're going to have, mm -hmm. as you see in Japan and Germany uh, and Taiwan, increased defense spending and Australia. Um, right. it's, we, people, publics recognize we, we have good friends. That's the good news. We have really good allies, um, all of us, but it's a more dangerous world and we got to pay for our defense. And after Ukraine, who's going to get rid of their nuclear weapons? in Libya ever again, that wouldn't be Oh North my Korea. gosh. I mean, as if the North Koreans needed even more reasons. I mean, the, even, if the whole world gave up nuclear, even if the whole <laughs> world gave up nuclear weapons, they would keep them because exactly. it's all they exactly. got. But, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Ukraine thing and, you know, Abe called for deployment of U.S. nuclear weapons in Japan with a dual key, U.S. Japanese dual key approach, you know, pretty out there. Um, 80% of South Koreans favor nuclear weapons. Um, quite prominent South Korean conservatives have called for deploying U.S. tactical nuclear weapons. It, the nuclear debate's going to be intense as well. Mm -hmm. So, Eleanor, I know you have some questions for Professor Green. Oh, yes. It's, it's a true honor. As uh, so many people know, last week there was a very hotly contested presidential election in South Korea, the closest, I believe, in modern South Korean history, if I recall correctly. So with um, oh. now Yoon Suk-il being president-elect. So, um, Professor Green, what is your um, take on what South Korean foreign policy might look like um, once he takes office? You know, he's expressed interest so far of perhaps joining some sort of working, quad-related working groups on emerging tech, perhaps climate, um, among other things. And I guess my other big question, which might also be considered a big elephant in the room, is what will the trajectory of South Korean-Japan relations look like? Um, you know, Prime Minister Kishida has congratulated you. Um, and they, it seems like both uh, leaders, or in Yoon's case, leader-to-be, 
um, it really wants to have a forward-leaning relationship between the two countries. So I would love to hear your take on both things. So Eleanor, you're pointing to one of the biggest opportunities that the Biden administration has in Asia right now, because um, the Korean Peninsula uh, historically was called the cockpit of Asia. Um, not like the cockpit in a plane, but the, the old-fashioned cockpit where they people would throw the cocks to fight and bet and gamble the, the roosters because that's where the big powers fought, right? Uh, exactly. The Mongols, uh, the the Japanese and the Chinese, the Japanese and the Russians, the communists and the democracy. I mean, that, this Korean Peninsula is the epicenter, usually, of major transformations in Asian geopolitics. And we had a problem in the U.S., frankly, where our close ally Japan was not really dealing strategically with Seoul. Um, and our close ally in Korea was, um, frankly, picking fights with Japan. And that created an opening for Russia and China and North Korea to try to exploit divisions. And and um, the Korean public, uh, the polls have steadily shown over the last few years, is much, much more pro-U.S., wants to improve relations with Japan, and dislikes China. The, the numbers in Korean public opinion polls on China are now starting to look like Japan. But the government of Moon Jae-in, which is made up of a lot of former anti-government protesters, um, has this dream of a peace treaty on the Korean Peninsula and reconciling with North Korea and therefore not, not pissing off China and Russia, who will help them. They had this incredibly naive dream that the Biden administration politely listened to while quietly worrying about how China would exploit this naivete. And... Um, and so, so Yun's role, although the U.S. is always neutral and the government never says it favors a side, Yun's victory is, I think, seen in this administration as a real opportunity. Um, it, it, yeah, as you pointed out, um, the new Korean government's going to try to be more active with the Quad. I don't think India will let new members in the Quad. Uh, you know, four is, is the number. But they can do things like participate in Malabar exercises, technology cooperation. Um, Korea is going to be much more active now on the Indo-Pacific. I mean, the Moon government largely avoided any strategic shaping of the Indo-Pacific. They were afraid it would upset China. Um, the, the Yun government's going to step up and work with the U.S. and Australia and Japan on infrastructure financing, I think, on capacity building for Southeast Asian militaries, on democracy, on women's empowerment. I mean, Korea does a lot of work on women's, women's empowerment alone. <laughs> now I think they'll do it with Australia, with Japan, with the U.S. It's a, it's a great opportunity. However. Um, the, um, uh, the Japan-Korea relationship is really complicated. And Yun's people have talked about a big bang with Japan. They've said a second Obuchi-Kim Dae-jung summit. In 1998, Prime Minister Obuchi Keizo, President Kim Dae-jung, had a historic, historic summit where they, they just did it all. They, they settled, both, both sides compromised. They settled all kinds of historic issues. As you know, the view in Tokyo is these issues were settled, and then the Moon government reopened them. So Korea's got to like come back to where we were, and then we'll start moving forward. We'll see what the new government does. They're very experienced diplomats coming in with Yoon. But, the, but at least in the campaign, the, the tenor from the Yoon government was, well, we're more pro-Japan, so we're going to sit down at a table and both sides will compromise. But the Japanese are thinking that the ball is entirely in Korea's court. So there's an opportunity, but the Japan-Korea thing's tricky. My my advice to both governments was focus on trilateral security cooperation to deal with North Korea, the Indo-Pacific, all the outside stuff, 
the inside stuff, the complicated historical issues, they're going to take time. And, it, 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 you know, in a legal sense, both sides agreed on a settlement. And so I think the Japanese do have a case that the ball's in Korea's court. You can't expect Japan to like re-arbitrate these things. On the other hand, I do think that the Japanese um, people, not just the government, um, have an interest in really going the extra mile to build trust with Korea. Um, academics to academics, business to business, politicians to politicians. The, the attitude in Tokyo is a little bit too, you know, the phrase shonganai. There's nothing we can do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about Korea. I, I hope that the Kishida government is going to be creative, uh, proactive, uh, with 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 malice towards none, and really build a, a a new atmosphere. The the bilateral issues, the Japanese have a legal case that's stronger, but they should not just rest on that. They really have to. This is an opportunity for Japan too. Right, because there's the innovation. Japan is starting to reinnovate now and become an innovation powerhouse. And yep. Korea has certainly been that. It just seems to me that the benefits of cooperation could be incredible. And they should just yeah. apply that innovation. They should apply. They should. Some of the most interesting work being done on, on 5G is between Japanese and Korean companies. Right. And But they're not advertising it because politically exactly. it's sensitive. And if there's a new atmosphere, the the, the opportunities for innovation. Uh, the other thing is Japanese and Korean companies, companies like Samsung and NEC, mm-hmm. um, Hitachi and LG, their view of China is actually very similar. You I know, bet. How, yeah. we, mm-hmm. how we taper and decouple and control sensitive technologies, they're going to be on the same page, basically, right. with Australia and true. the US and Britain and the Dutch and maybe Taiwan. They're, the Koreans and Japanese are going to be at the core of that. If, so w- w- this is really big. Um, but it's Japan and Korea and it's complicated. It's not just complicated. (laughs) It's all complicated. (laughs) So Eleanor, do you have any last, did I miss a question that we talked about that, that, uh, you think I should have asked today? Well, the one thing that we haven't addressed is about the new national security strategy that is set to come out later this year. Um, you know, just given what's going on, not just in Ukraine, but the rest of the world, I mean, the Ukraine crisis, what's going on, touches all aspects of the world. From Lyric and I, we've talked about how this will probably um, bring about a food crisis in the Middle East and North Africa, unfortunately. Um, so I'm curious as to your thoughts on what is going on in Ukraine and what, how that will change perhaps the current national strategy that Japan may have had in mind before the crisis and what's, yeah, what will they add to it? That's a great question. I mean, the U.S. also has to also put out its national security strategy, and I've worked on several of those in the White House, and I really feel for them because they're really hard work. And then now they have to, and I'm sure they were heading towards emphasizing the Indo-Pacific, but now they got to exactly. find a way to formulate a strategy for the public that does Europe and the Indo-Pacific without diminishing climate change and other things that Biden thinks are important and democracy. So what a complicated recipe they have to do. In Japan's case, I don't think it's quite as complicated. Um, Abe, you know, put out Japan's first national security strategy in 2013, and it was really good. I mean, I've worked on these and I've studied them. It was really good. Usually we put these out in the, in the U.S. and about a year later, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did have a strategy. Abe's 2000 national, 2013 national security strategy has guided Japan's overall approach to the world really successfully for eight years. Um, and um, so that's impressive. 
the the new strategy under Kishida will be finished this summer and come out publicly in the in the fall winter. Mm-hmm. They can't do it publicly in the summer because, as you know, there's an election in Japan, and exactly. they need their friends Komeito with more pacifist leaning. So it'll be quietly pulled together over the next four months, and then they'll issue it, and it will largely follow Abe's trajectory. But I would look for some new things, um, strike. You know, the ability to strike enemy forces will be will be really important. That's very new for Japan. And they've always had a defensive-oriented military posture. That will be big. Um, and then another big one will be um, really an opportunity, um, global alliances. I mean, Japan has been very active in, in Europe with NATO and the EU, building up support for competing with China, and stood up and got a lot of respect in Europe, standing up to Ukraine. So I would expect this new national security strategy in Japan to really emphasize global alliances, that NATO, Japan, Korea, US, Korea, US, Australia, these are all part of a global network of alliances. And we need to think that way and work together. And and um, and, and so I'd look for more Europe, actually, in Japan's new national security strategy. The last one was almost all Indo-Pacific. I'd look for more Europe. Um, and And I think as Europeans develop their strategy, I'd look for more Japan and Australia and Korea. And that you know, every crisis is an opportunity. Every, you know, cloud is a silver lining, whatever. The, our alliances are, man, are we lucky. And and they're tolerant too. They've tolerated so much from us when you think about it because uh, we're so indispensable. So th- that's going to be a key part of the Japanese strategy, I'm sure. And Korea too, hopefully, because yes. they have some months to put that in place. Yeah. So friendship overall, it looks yep. like, and combined yep. interests, right? Yes. Maybe we're the lucky country, not Australia. I tell my students at Georgetown, and Eleanor's one of them, <laughs> a lot of you mm-hmm. should be studying Chinese, but a lot of you also need to be studying Japanese and Korean and Indonesian and French. <laughs> yeah, the China right. problem is a global problem, and we need allies. That's, that's a very, very good point. Plus, there are well, a lot of jobs in Japan now, so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Line of Advantage is going to be a wonderful read for all of us. It's coming out March 22nd. And um, I've asked Eleanor, actually, we have a new book review section on our website. uh, And because all of us love to read books. So we will, Eleanor is going to be doing the review of your book. Uh-oh. So you got so the student will be grading the professor. <laughs> it used to be um sensei reviewing my memos. This time I'm reviewing his book. <laughs> I think this is I'm fun. Not harsh, I'm not a harsh reviewer, I promise. Talk about the inmates oh. taking over the asylum. Here you go. <laughs> Eleanor, he's worried. I could tell. <laughs> Well, this is fun. This is, it's fun turnaround, but thank you so much, Eleanor. Thank you, Mike, for for joining us. I think people are going to really appreciate this discussion and reading your book. We'll post some of your articles as well and uh, looking forward to our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you both very much. It was great. Thank you. Thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. 